You are listening to Your Community Spirit on Your Community Radio. This is Your Community DJ Ord Energy Mon Beck. And this is Teresa Long. Oh, yeah, you're here too. It's like, it's a surprise because of the weather. Yeah, it's the ice apocalypse right now, but we both made it. Well, it's not just the ice apocalypse, it's also full moon. Yeah. It's also Friday the 13th. <laughs> yeah. It's also so something special is going to happen today. We don't know bipolar weather. It's also the end of the world as we know it. Well, Wait a second, huh? I don't call it bipolar weather. No, that's derogatory to bipolar. Uh, bipolar means from all over the world. It's we are probably getting somebody <laughs> from the North Pole right now. It's just like it's from both sides of the poles. Um, bipolar weather, in that it has the normal emotions of the earth it just goes to the extreme sometimes as in it was 70 this week yeah it was 70 yeah it was nice it was five degrees this week it was the best of times it was the worst <laughs> just like... and it's, as i was putting this together last night i didn't even realize the irony of our first story here uh unrelenting global warming sends sea ice to record low as scientists feel the heat too so the sea ice in the arctic and the, and the antarctic is at record low all that ice is here right now in the Midwest. <laughs> <It's just like laughs> they sent it to us, special delivery. So, unrelenting warmth during what should be the iciest time of year sent global sea ice extent to a record low last month. The National Snow and Ice Data Center said on Friday, with both polar ice caps at a record low extent every single day of the month. Okay, so it's not just like they had one day that happened to be a little hot and it thawed a little more. Every day of the month, there was a low, record low ice extent. Compared to the average from 1981 to 2010, the area of ice missing in the Arctic was about the size of Texas and Arizona combined. That's pretty big. I was going to say pretty small, but... <laughs> well, for the Arctic, you know, it's only a portion of the Arctic, but for our little human primate minds, that's pretty big. In the Antarctic, it was bigger than Alaska, according to the NSIDC. Temperatures in the Arctic were about 9 degrees Fahrenheit above average throughout November and December, with peak readings soaring to 50 degrees above the long-term average. So 9 degrees above normal doesn't sound bad, but this is supposed to be the coldest time of the year, which you would hope that it would be below freezing in the coldest time of the year in areas that have lots of ice. Yeah, you would think so. So that means in the summer, we're in trouble. If, if it's hitting 50 degrees in the coldest time of the year, well, how about us? We hit 70 degrees. Yeah, we hit 70. You know? I'm not enjoying it, but you know, it's crazy. So, yes, we might be in trouble. Yeah. Here's a quote. Some of the crazy weather patterns we've seen this winter could be, in part, due to the loss of sea ice, said NSIDC Director Mark Ceres. Quote, we've had very unusual weather patterns pumping up warmth up into the Arctic. The changes are happening so fast that we can't keep up with them. Now, that's part of the challenge with, with climate disruption, climate destabilization, is that, you know, we've studied what the climate has been like in the past, but we're sort of running a massive global experiment right now. Let's pump a bunch of CO2 in the atmosphere and see what happens. Aren't you kind of tired of saying the same thing? We've been saying this for like 10 years. Yeah, we have. I mean, I guess... I'm, Isn't it nice to be right, though? Like, yeah. you know, we've been talking about how the world's falling apart for 10 years, and and it turns out, hey, we're right. You know, the world is warming. We're going to have crazy weather. What? Yeah. 
Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Just like, why would I want to be right about the world falling apart? I couldn't have been right when I picked a lot of numbers and wrong about global warming. (laughs) It had to be the reverse. It's like... Okay, so... uh, On the science front, too, with many in President-elect Donald Trump's proposed cabinet on record either denying the global warming is caused by greenhouse gases or questioning the need for urgent action, many fear that future funding for government climate science could be at risk. We don't need the science anymore. We know it's happening. Well, why, why do we need science see, anymore? I, I have that thought sometimes, but we need the science to understand as it keeps happening. Well, maybe they could help us figure out ways to stop it. Wait, there's one way. We have to quit farting, yeah. <laughs> you know, with our cars, with everything. Yeah. So. So, let's see. Yeah, so they've been, du- we've talked about this before, they've been duplicating some of the data out of fear that the incoming administration will tamper with it. Will cause them to delete massive. Yeah, because I mean, even if they don't, you know, edit the data to try to mess it up, they could just stop funding and like close all the servers, that sort of thing. Right, and so if this information isn't publicly available, all the information they've been collecting all these years, it's kind of starting over kind of deal. Yeah. Okay. So they have reportedly, you know, there are a lot of scientists that are duplicating climate data right now to protect it from that. So it's things are heating up in the Arctic and the Antarctic and in the science, uh, too, because they're taking a lot of action to preserve their data. Now, mostly it's been scientists and environmentalists, but more and more we're starting to see people who deal with money. The World Economic Forum, Environment Dominates Threats to the Global Economy. The world's fast degrading environment now represents a major threat to the global economy, the World Economic Forum warned on Thursday. Its annual Global Risk Report lists extreme weather, water shortages, natural disasters, and a failure to prepare for climate change as four of the top perils of 2017 in terms of... Impact. Impact. That hurt my hands. <laughs> I was like, I slapped a little too hard. Um, weapons of mass destruction top the list. A nod to rising tensions in the Korean Peninsula and fast cooling relations between Russia and Europe. Despite agreement on a UN climate pact in 2015, the quote, pace of change is not fast enough, said the report, released every year ahead of the two day World Economic Forum in Davos. Is it Davos or Davos? I think it's Davos. Davos, Switzerland. Changing weather patterns and a lack of access to clean water could, quote, trigger or exacerbate societal risks such as domestic or regional conflict and involuntary migration, end quote. It added, quote, the World Bank forecasts that water stress could cause extreme societal stress in regions such as the Middle East, where the economic impact of water scarcity could put a risk 6% to put at risk 6% of GDP by 2050. Why do they always put the dates way far away that it seems yeah. like, but we, I mean, we used to say 2020 yeah. and that's like, you know, three years from now. So <laughs> just like, <laughs> yeah, maybe they feel like saying 2020 at this point is not really saying all that much. Like basically mm-hmm. going to be kind of similar to today. Probably. The bank also forecasts that 
water availability in cities could decline by as much as two-thirds by 2050 as a result of climate change and competition from energy generation and agriculture, end quote. I would actually like to see more modeling for 2030 and 2040, though, because 2050, if we do absolutely nothing differently between now and 2050, that's a big problem. <laughs> They also pointed out to legal action in the U.S., U.K., and the Netherlands as evidence of a threat to governments who do not appreciate the risk linked to environmental degradation. Yeah, so you're not just stunned by the degradation. You're stunned by your citizens suing you if you don't do something about it. And then, of course, the you know, how the – what's causing – you know, it messes with the economy. I mean yeah. – this is, this is – to me, it's sort of an odd canary in the coal mine to me when – you know, I'm, I'm used to the fact that fellow ecologically-minded people are concerned about this crisis. But when, you know, the, the sort of capitalist economists who don't really usually care about social issues, they're saying, oh, we're all going to die from climate change. That, that's a pretty serious sign. You did not know that green meant money? All this time, <laughs> the, the green movement green. was talking about the wrong green. Yeah. That's all. Well, it just... I, think, I think maybe they're realizing their bunkers are not deep enough in the ground to protect them from... <laughs> What will come if we don't take some action on this? You know, they're, they're concerned that if the whole global economy collapses, they don't have any fun either. You well, know, no, they, they don't care if it collapses as long as they make money on the way. Yeah. So this report isn't, let's fix it. This report is, beware so you can, like, invest in things that will make you money. Yeah, invest in uh, bunkers and... Renewable energy and... And renewables. Yeah, it's like, and, you know... Um, things that stop the ocean from rising yeah. and um, what do you call it? desalination plants, you know, because water is going to be a, it is a big issue, whether drinking or flooding. Yeah. yeah, I've often thought that in an alternate life, an alternate reality, I'd be like an investment banker of some sort. What? And I would invest based on climate. You know, I'd be like, here are all the things that are going to go up and down based on climate change being a reality. And you could be ahead of the curve on a lot of things because if you don't know the seriousness of climate change. You won't know, you know, just how much renewables are going to go up, just how much seawall, like seawall investment, for example. Somebody's probably going to make a killing building the seawalls around major cities. Do you remember years ago we read the story about the guy who planted a bunch of trees? Oh, yeah. I think it was in Italy where th that particular tree, I think it was um, olives. Yeah, well, there was... And in that particular area, it wasn't warm enough for the olives to actually grow, but he said... By the time they're ready to fruit, which is like seven to ten years, yeah. it'll be warm enough. So he like literally planted a whole grove of olives, and you know he's investing in climate change. Yeah, there's <laughs> something like that too with England and wineries. I think that you know that there are people in England who want to outdo the French in wine because they know that climate will change and they think it will be in their favor. <laughs> it's interesting the ways people cope with crisis. Um, Let's see. Here's another interesting story. Native Americans fight Texas pipeline using, quote, same model as standing. Wait a second. This is like the Texas Rangers against Native Americans. Like, this is like, you know, cowboys against Indians, like, since the beginning of time. Yeah. It's a classic tale of cowboys against Indians. Except they're protecting their land against oil pipelines. Yeah. This time it's oil pipelines. And not... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So indigenous activists have set up camps in the Texas desert to fight a pipeline project there. The latest sign that Standing Rock water protector movement...
wait, wait a second. All the people in like South Dakota got really cold, yeah. and they're like, "Let's go where it's warm." Because, yeah, because I mean, there's still over a thousand people in South Dakota, but there was like over ten thousand people. Yeah. So now they can all go to Texas. Yeah. This was good planning. Yeah. It's like, become, like rich mean, people can do it. Why can't anybody else? Yeah. I mean, there used to be migratory patterns of the indigenous uh, before colonization. So maybe they can migrate from the resistance camps in Texas, the resistance camps in North Dakota. <laughs> maybe go on to other ones too. Yeah. Can you imagine that? 10,000 people just like, up, oh, let's go over here. Up, oh, yeah. let's go over there. Yeah. And, and something, yeah, that really isn't as much of a thing in our, in our contemporary society. But it's becoming one with camps like this. The Two Rivers Camp, located south of Marfa near the border, has attracted dozens of demonstrators in its first week to protest the Trans-Pecos Pipeline, a 148-mile project on track to transport frack natural gas through the Big Bend region to Mexico. Okay, wait a second. We're not even going to use it ourselves. We're going to send it all to Mexico. Yeah, sending it straight through to Mexico. That's one of the big things about these demonstrations, too, is that people often take it up for local reasons, but it has impacts on the whole region and the whole world. Because if you're stopping a pipeline that runs through several regions, burns all this fossil fuels that affects everybody, then your struggle is connected to other people's struggles. And I think a lot of people are starting to realize that. So, citing concerns about damage to the environment and sacred indigenous sites, the camp parallels the high-profile effort to block the Dakota Access Pipeline and is one of multiple Native American land campaigns building on the momentum of the demonstrations in North Dakota. Quote, we're going to follow the same model as Standing Rock, said Frankie Arona, executive director of the Society of Native Nations and an organizer at the Two Rivers Camp. Quote, this is a huge historical moment for environmental issues, for protecting our water, protecting our land, protecting sacred sites, and protecting treaties. Two rivers emerged weeks after the Obama administration denied a key permit for the Dakota Access Pipeline, a major victory for the Standing Rock Tribe and thousands of indigenous and environmental activists, who spent months camped in Cannonball in hopes of thwarting the $3.7 billion oil project. Though the fight against Stoppel is not over, given that Donald Trump is an investor in the company and supporter of the project. I mean, think of how... how uh, isn't, I mean, under uh, conflict of interest... Yeah. It's a slight, mild conflict of interest. You personally own... <laughs> slight, mild? <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. Oh, okay. It's I was a like... conflict of interest. It's like you own and you have the right to, you know, approve or deny. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's a pretty big deal, you know, because it's sort of... There are all of these different pipelines going through, and now they're becoming all of these different local resistance movements to oppose them. Now, the poor company that owns the Dakota Access Pipeline also owns this pipeline in, down in Texas. Yeah. Energy Transfer Partners. You know, so the bunch, of, bunch of, you know, indigenous activists stopped a $3.7 billion project, and now they're going after our other project. All these yeah. Texas guys are like... Yeah, they're throwing their hats on the ground right now. Yeah, they're throwing their hats, stomping, saying words we can't say on the radio. <laughs> well, maybe if they respected the rights of the indigenous, they wouldn't have all their projects frustrated. <laughs> so the campaign against the Trans-Pecos project has the closest connections to Standing Rock with the activists adopting similar tactics, including up spiritual camps in the region of construction and planning nonviolent direct actions. So... 
So in other news, the climate investigation of Exxon can proceed in Massachusetts, the state judge rules. A Massachusetts Superior Court judge has refused to block the climate fraud investigation of ExxonMobil, opened last year by State Attorney General Maura Healy. The ruling on Wednesday means Exxon must comply with Healy's civil investigative demand for company records. Healy requested the documents as part of an investigation to determine if Exxon misled consumers about the risks climate change posed to its business. Exxon had argued Healy lacked the jurisdiction to pursue the investigation and maintained Texas was the proper venue for any legal action. They probably have a lot of influence in Texas, but they said they were doing this because the company's headquartered in Dallas, so that should be the jurisdiction. But the judge, Heidi Brieger, disagreed. Quote, this matter involves the Massachusetts Consumer Protection Statute, a Massachusetts case law arising under it about which the Massachusetts Superior Court is certainly more familiar than would be a federal court in Texas, according to Brieger's ruling. The parallel legal battle Exxon is waging in a federal court in Texas to derail Healy's investigation remains underway. So they've made progress in Massachusetts, but they're still trying in Texas to fight what's going on in Massachusetts. And as far as I know, the Exxon Mobil oil spill from 1989, I bring that up regularly. Yeah, they still have not paid. Right. Now, luckily, Rex Tillerson, the CEO of Exxon Mobil from 2006 to 2016, He's not going to have any problem because he's just been nominated Secretary of State, right? Yeah. So his company is not going to have any problems anymore because, well, they've got a person got in the government. Yeah. They've got a friend. You've got a friend in me. So um, it, his appointment is controversial because, you know, he has really close ties to Russia. Um, and it is controversial in the fact that, you know, Exxon is the world's sixth largest company and is under and has been under investigation for many years. Yeah, many years. And they've, they've been um, under investigation for a lot of human rights violations. Currently, there's a lawsuit against them, including against Tillerson. Um, so if that's how he runs his business with a bunch of human rights violations and then they make him Secretary of State, how is that going to be? How will that relate to the running of the country? Interesting, interesting, interesting. We've got some time for some happier news, though. Solar power to rise from Chernobyl's nuclear ashes. <laughs> oh, wait. It's, it's a good thing. Why am I <laughs> just like... <laughs> it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of like the Phoenix. It's a sort of a positive way to do it. The Phoenix rising from the ashes. It was the worst nuclear accident in history, causing directly the deaths of 50 people with at least additional 4,000 fatalities believed to be caused by exposure to radiation. The 1986 explosion at the Chernobyl power plant in Ukraine also resulted in vast areas of land being contaminated by nuclear fallout with a 30-kilometer exclusion zone which comprised the town of I was going really good, and then I hit. <laughs> Pripyat being declared in the area around the facility. Now, two companies from China <laughs> plan to build a one gigawatt, gigawatt solar power plant on the 2,500 hectares of land in the inclusion zone. Now, part of it is this is starting to happen all over the world. Areas that are wastelands cannot be used for anything. Yeah. 
you can still use them for solar. Right. As long as the sun shines on that spot of land, it doesn't matter if it's radioactive, doesn't matter if the soil is toxic, you can put some solar panels over there. I wonder if they're going to have to wear, like, suits while they... Yeah, I was wondering that, too. They might actually, because it's part of the exclusion zone, so it is still radioactive. Or they just, they build them in big sections and then, like, you know, I don't know, helicopter men. Yeah, <laughs> like... helicopter men. <laughs> or remote control robots, like, you know, just have them come and, like, unload them from the truck and just, like, set them down. Because yeah. they do have solar arrays that literally, um, it's like a pole-mounted array with, like, a big concrete block on the bottom. And they set those up in areas that have weak soil or um, it's a temporary install. They'll set it up and, you know, in the future they plan to build something there. So then they can just pick up these big concrete blocks and move them. Yeah. So maybe just slow down to five miles an hour is toss. <laughs> 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 or they just, ha- I don't know, it's, I'm just imagining a big vehicle that it just kind of like rolls off of it in rows, yeah. you know. Um, now, since it's a big one gigawatt project, they've probably got all sorts of detailed plans already. Ukrainian officials say the company's estimate they will spend up to one billion dollars on the project over the next two years. It is cheap land and abundant sunshine, which constitutes the solid foundation for the project, says Yosop Smirak. No, Smirak. I almost got it. Ukraine's Minister of Environment and Natural Resources. In addition, the remaining electrical transmission facilities are ready for reuse. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was a power plant. So, So, like, there's literally power lines and transformer stations and stuff. I mean, they're probably a little bit worn out since they've been sitting there since, you know, the 80s when the thing blew up. And they might have to design it a special way to be compatible with the old equipment. But, you know... Having all that old infrastructure in there and using it is a big plus. So China and the Ukraine getting together and solar power and nuke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so let's get into some of these holidays we've got. Today is Friday the 13th. We were just talking about this. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Oh, it's International Skeptics Day. Uh, International Skeptics Day, yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure I believe that. I'll have to look into that too. <laughs> It says, make your dream come true day. That's a funny combination, because you've got the skeptics and also making your dreams come true. <laughs> Just like... <laughs> so be skeptical, skeptical about your dreams, but make them come true anyway. If your dream is to dress up your pet, tomorrow is dress up your pet day. Yeah. And Sunday is National Hat Day. And uh, coming up on Monday <laughs> is uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday is celebrated. So... Uh, but but it's also like appreciated Dragon Day and National Nothing Day. Yeah, Wait a second. Yeah. Like that's just like that's just like. It's a. Yeah. It's a thumb like it's a, a pr- National Nothing Day is. I wonder if those two drift are always you know drift around. Okay, I hope so. Yeah. Hope National Nothing Day should not be on Martin Luther King's Day. Yeah, National Everything Day. He had a powerful legacy. Did you have a New Year's resolution? Not really. Mine was not to have one, and I'm doing really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, because Tuesday is Ditch New Year's Resolutions Day. Yeah, I kind of don't believe in New Year's resolution. If you've made it this far, you can you can ditch it on Tuesday. Yeah. I mean, the closest I have is that I want to work on things related to climate change, like do something local related to climate change. That, but it's, it's not really a New Year's resolution thing. It's a I'm a human being on this planet thing. <laughs> 
So oh, let's see. Now, thesaurus day. Uh, what's another word for thesaurus? I don't know. A book with lots of words. There you go. <laughs> so it's thesaurus day on Wednesday. It's a compendium of synonyms. <laughs> compendium of synonyms. That's pretty good. <laughs> a, a, a voice from on high said that. It's National Soup Month, Hot Tea Month, National Oatmeal Month, National Hobby Month, National Bath Safety Month, and also National Blood Donor Month. Let's get it done. Happenings. Southern Illinois Stands with Standing Rock is still holding a donation drive because, well, there are people camped out in the winter, in the cold, and they need things. Anyone can donate supplies to the resistance camps may drop their goods off during open hours of the Gaia House and the Center for Subsistence Research. The permit was denied, but the resistant camps still need uh, our help because they can just reroute it. Yeah, that's often when you've got to be most wary is because they might try to slip something through you when they think no one's looking. Like last night? Did oh, you yeah, catch like that? Um, so, also coming up, the Anti-Fascist Coalition, coming up on Saturday at 3 p.m. at the Guy House. This meeting is open to everyone who is concerned about the increase in institutional violence, hate crimes, harassment, and other forms of systemic violence and oppression that may be associated with the recent election. So, the, the campaign, Trump's campaign included rhetoric and policy proposals that were threatening to women, immigrants, people of color, LGBTQ folks, Muslims, and a lot of other groups. So people who are concerned about that are organizing in various groups, including this anti-fascist coalition, coming up on Saturday at 3 p.m. at Guy House. It's met a couple of times already. It's already starting to organize local events. So there are people in the local community who care and who are doing something about it. Also coming up, we have the Jackson Falls hike coming up on Sunday. The Shawnee Group Sierra Club is sponsoring a hike at Jackson Falls in the Shawnee National Forest this Sunday. The five-mile hike will include great views of the falls and from the clifftop. They suggest you bring a water, hiking staff, and wear sturdy shoes. You must call the leader, Bob Mulcahy, at 618-942-6342 in order to participate. They will be carpooling from Carbondale at 9 a.m. and also meeting at the Ozark General Store at 10 a.m. So a couple of opportunities there to get out in the woods. New Humanist Forum. Who owns National TV News? Sunday, January 15th at 12.15 p.m. at the Carbondale Unitarian Fellowship on Parish Lane. Eileen, SIU professor of the College of Mass Communications and Media Arts, will present Who Owns National TV News? Most of the coverage of the 2016 presidential election focused on the horse race and personal friction between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Journal ignored were the corporations that own operations and run them as profitable businesses that advance their owners' vested interests. Again, New Humanist Forum, Carbondale Unitarian Fellowship, Sunday at 12.15 p.m. And that's up next. Oh, yeah, they're com- yeah, and they're coming up next for an interview, too, here on WDGX. Let's see, also coming up we have the 18th annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Celebration. You mentioned the holiday, the celebration locally is coming up on 4 p.m. on Sunday, January 15th at the Carbondale Civic Center. The theme for this year's celebration is And And Still I Rise. Students from the Carbondale Middle School Jazz Band and Murfreesboro High School Choir will provide music. 
There will also be a performance by Ernie Bryant, Paul's Chapel Women's Ensemble of Marion, will accompany her. And Kiriam Shariati will also perform the solo, If I Can Help Somebody. Uh, they will have Mayor Mike Henry and Murf Carbonell Mayor Mike Henry and Murfreesboro Mayor Will Stevens and Mary and Mayor Bob Butler will all present the Spirit of Dr. King Community Service Award to this year's recipient. So that's coming up again on Sunday, January 15th at 4 p.m. at the Carbondale Civic Center. Also at the Carbondale Civic Center, Monday, 8 a.m., is the Martin Luther King Breakfast. And so come have breakfast with people. Yes. People eat. So um, ongoing right now is Waterways hosted by the Science Center. This is sponsored by the Illinois Humanitarians and the Smithsonian, and it's through January 22nd. And there is a series of speakers and events. Sunday is open discussion on floods and levees. Next Thursday is community disaster preparedness. And then next Saturday, well, Saturday the 21st, is Global Stakes of Fresh Water. The full calendar of events is available at yoursciencecenter.org. Yes, and also mark your calendars for next Saturday, January 21st, the Southern Illinois Women's March and Rally. We'll have a lot more details on that next week. You have been listening to Your Community Spirit on Your Community Radio. We'll see you again on the radio. Stay safe out there.